0: I came of age with global history. It became popular as I was beginning my academic career for contemporaries. But I was very hesitant at first to actually call myself a global historian. It scared me, partially because I felt like I was making a big claim, partially because I was not too thrilled by some global histories I was reading. It's also trendy and oftentimes, the placement of the terms global and history within a project was haphazard, it was thoughtless and it was superficial. But I am inspired by several leading lights in the field. And I'm inspired by the fact that global history can often have an agenda. It seeks to push back against some of the prejudices that come with the field of history writing, specifically the overt focus on Western Europe and North America. And as an aspiring historian of the Arabic-speaking world, this debate is white-hot, something I have to contend with every day. Right now in the U.S., a debate is raging over a world history curriculum for high school students that overtly focuses on Western Europe and North America proof that we as historians can indeed matter. And this is where global history can make a difference. So today, I get to speak to one of those leading lights of global intellectual history, um, global history, excuse me. Uh, Welcome to New Books and World Affairs. My name is Eni Mansour or Nadira, and I'm a graduate student at Princeton University's Department of Near Eastern Studies, working on the global intellectual history of the Arabic language press from the 19th through the early 20th century. And my guest is Sebastian Conrad, who is professor of global history, post-colonial history, intellectual history uh, and intellectual history at the Center for Global History at the Free University of Berlin. So he's the author of many books, including Globalization in the Nation in Imperial Germany, out 2010 from Cambridge University Press, The Quest for the Lost Nation, Writing History in Germany and Japan in the American Century, and What is Global History, out 2016 from Princeton University Press. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, good to meet you, Nadira.
0: Good to meet you, too. So we always begin by putting the guests on the spot a bit. And we ask sort of what is your intellectual biography? How did you come to write the books you wrote to speak of the ideas that you speak of?
1: Thank you for that question. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's always difficult to write your own biography. Uh, but um, I, I think it's, yes, in some ways, you could probably say that the um, the institutional background from where I write also has led me in the directions where I am now, which means that you know the the setting where I was trained is a European continental European setting where history essentially means the history of your own country. So if you want to work in a history department, you essentially have to do you know German history in Germany, you have to do Italian history in Italy, you have to do French history in France. Um, but my own training was in Japanese history. I started out with a PhD that was uh, essentially a comparison of how after 1945, after the World War, after fascism, after defeat, how uh, both Germany and Japan struggled with their own past and tried to sort of refashion, reinvent their own national past. At a moment when it seemed that the you know the history of the nation was essentially over, so that was my PhD, and uh, for a long time I uh, struggled to link that to the demands that the institution of the university uh, posed on me. That is, if I wanted to be a historian, I had to leave in some ways the field of Japan, Japanese studies or Japanese history, and you know contribute to German history. Otherwise, I would never be teaching at a history department. So in some ways early on I learned the lesson that that the, there are institutional constraints that do not allow me to ask the kinds of questions that I would like to ask or in some ways pursue the kinds of projects that I would like to pursue. So in some ways uh global history this whole field is has come to me as a form of liberation as a liberation of the national container model that really is so present in you know in the university system Pretty much everywhere in continental Europe, but 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 also beyond that.
0: So I have to thank you, of course, for your book, which comes again in the hopefully in the middle of a very long career of writing about these these things um, using primary sources, using different methodologies, writing actual histories. But what is global history is actually, I think, it's more of a methodological book or more of a philosophy of history, so to speak. And what I really enjoyed about the book was that you take. You take global history seriously. This isn't just a placeholder term. This isn't simply a way of 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 of, of making something more hip. You can you ask the reader to very seriously take um, the term global and to think about how to incorporate that into their own work. So I want to ask you in a hundred words or less. I don't know if it's possible. Can you tell me what global history? Is? <laughs>
1: All right. Well, that's that is a challenge. Uh, well. Um... So, yes, maybe most succinctly, I would say that global history is a perspective that allows us as historians to view whatever we study, a country, a phenomenon, an event, not in isolation, but in the various ways in which it's linked to other places and in which it's also in which it develops in response to and caused by factors that are external to it. Well, that sounds a bit abstract. That was maybe 100 um, but, um, a hundred words. But sort of a comparison I like um, that I read recently was uh, one where uh, a scholar said, look, if you were a chemist, you would study, you know, all the elements and the various ways in which they interact. Historians have almost... Have, have what, what historians have done amounts to focusing on just one element, studying, for example, their own country, and that is extremely limiting. So, so to move beyond that, I think, is the sort of the most succinct way of thinking about global history.
0: So, is global history is is a perspective is a methodology? Is it are those one and the same?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I so historians like to talk about method, but it's sometimes very difficult to pin down what exactly the method is. So I, I'd i rather speak of a perspective or maybe, yeah, let me say this in in this way. So I use the term global history for two purposes. One is sort of more political, if you will. So political in the sense of an intervention into the university system or the institution where I work. And the other is more methodological. For the first one, I think we need a term, you know, to, 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 to enable us to ask the questions that go beyond particular nations, beyond particular civilizations, uh, essentially to, you know, range broadly. And sometimes this can be uh, transnational history, it can be transregional connections, it could be, um, you know, colonial studies and so forth. But the term global is for me an umbrella term that helps me to bring all this together. So it's an intervention into departments into you know positions at the university level but then more specifically as a on this methodological level i use it as a as a perspective by which i mean it's it's one perspective among potentially many that that puts whatever we study in a new light it enables me to ask new questions and also to gain new answers
0: so what i also really enjoyed about the book um was the fact that I actually thought it was highly teachable when I was sitting down and for my exams basically to qualify me to write my dissertation my general exams I had to read your book for one of my fields and oh, thanks, um for thanks that
1: for, s- thanks for investing the time yeah
0: <laughs> well it was it was a global intellectual history field so it was very easy right. to incorporate it yeah. in um but I had to write a syllabus for undergraduates. Well, actually I had to write two syllabus with syllabi. One was for undergrads, one was for graduate students um, with global intellectual history. And and the task was methodological, was pedagogical. Like, how would you make them different? How would you teach a graduate student? How would you teach an undergrad Mm -hmm. global history? And I looked at your book and I thought, this is actually so well subdivided. It was kind of like you wrote the syllabus for me. (laughs) Um, And one thing I love about it is you actually, before you get into the nitty gritty methodological questions, you actually explain you orient global history within all of these different terms and explain a bit why it's become so trendy, why historians are thinking globally. So with that, I want to ask you, what is the distinction between globalization and global history? How do they intersect? How are the processes? How is globalization as a concept? How is How did it influence the development of global history?
1: Well, yeah, I I think you point to a very important issue. There's probably no doubt that global history as a field and also as, a, as an approach would not have... Uh, gained the prominence it has gained, if it was not for the process of, of globalization, or should we rather say for the whole, you know, for the whole discourse of uh, of, of globalization? So it's it's true that. Sorry about that.
0: Uh, what do we do? Um, I'm taking the time.
1: Yeah, yeah, I need so to I mute need to this. Mute
0: or if you
1: want to pick it up, let me know. I I need to find a way of how to. All right. Sorry. Sorry. All right.
0: You can just continue. You can yeah.
1: Out. So should I just go ahead or? Yeah, yeah. go
0: okay. ahead. I took it
1: All out already. Um, right. Without without the hype about globalization, probably global history as a field probably would not have taken off the way it, it did. So So there's no denying that among the conditions of emergence of that field, there was clearly also the discourse of, in some ways, also the process of globalization, which, of course, doesn't mean that global history equals the history of globalization. In fact, I think in the in the large field, in the various, you know, in this broad field of global history, the history of globalization would even would, would probably only occupy a small uh, chamber. Um, in fact, I, I tend to think of the history of globalization even as almost... Uh, be it a misnomer or something that I don't find terribly helpful. So in some ways, the, you know, the term globalization is is um, very apposite for the period, let's say, from 1973, 1979 onwards. Um, but to create and construct a long, long history of globalization, as historians have done, reaching back centuries, Risks is is I think highly problematic. It sort of you know unifies something that is very disparate, that is very conflictual. Is not one neat process. And by po- po- by positing this long history of globalization, we we run the risk of giving our current age and era a very long and almost natural history. But I don't think that is a very appropriate way of depicting the past. And therefore I'm skeptical vis-a-vis this, this idea of the history of globalization.
0: It's something that I always definitely have approached as conceptual um, in my own sense of it. But I do, I do wonder if that's why there's been this surge in global history's popularity. We are thinking with this sort of conceptual globalization trend. Like we, it is part of our vocabulary increasingly mm. to speak in, in everyday life about, about globalization. Um, so is there a particular reason why you think global history? Cause I, I would make the assumption as I noted earlier that global history has become particularly trendy. And I feel like the naysayers always mm. throw this at me at mm. conferences or at mm. classes. There's always the comment that, um, Oh, well global history has only become trendy in the last 10 or so mm. years. There have been a surge in, in its popularity. Why do you what, what would you attribute that
1: to? No, no. I think so. So, in terms of the, I th- so there are various levels up in it uh, in, the, in this question. So, so one would be sort of within the academy. So, why is it the scholars, um, you know, uh, increasingly flock to this uh, new approach, and why do they find it interesting and liberating? And I think that is uh, a very specific issue that is essentially has to do with the long tradition of uh, history as it's been being as it's been taught and researched which was uh, mostly limited to particular nations as understood as containers and increasingly scholars have been dissatisfied with this state of affairs i mean they've they haven't global history is not the first moment not the first you know strategy to move out of this container model scholars have Done comparisons. They've interacted with, with with postcolonial studies, with the history of transfers, and so forth. But but global history seems to be now the most capacious, the most powerful, mm-hmm. larger framework that enables historians to move out of their little national boxes. And I think that is a that is a development that that you that we can observe within the discipline. But of course, this development cannot be detached from this from the larger context. And here, I think clearly the the the, the you know, the larger geopolitical globalization is one of the crucial factors. And what you refer to, the, the the critical perspectives that link global history so closely to globalization, this is a reproach that you can sometimes find. Namely, global history was was emerged against the background of globalization, and therefore it is to some extent the handmaiden of globalization. I mean, this is a kind of inference I sometimes hear, and this is, I think, sometimes is something that global historians need to work against and, and struggle against as well.
0: Um, so one thing I always get asked is, is a global history. Well, one thing when I'm teaching that I've, I've, I've often have to distinguish between is global history is not world history because in the American context, world history often implies sort of, it's a pedagogical tool. It, implies that you're sort of teaching all the histories together in bite-sized pieces. But I'm always trying to emphasize that global history is quite different. But the next question people want to open up and ask me is, well, is it a universal history? Um, so that's the question I want to put to you. But I also want to ask, what other types of global history
1: exist? Right. All right. Thanks. I mean, I, I like your formulation of a pedagogical tool, because in some ways you could say global history is that as well, right? I mean, it's a particular... It helps us to bring to light for ourselves, but also for our students, particular connections that otherwise we might not see. So in that respect, yes, I agree with you. It is not world history. It doesn't pretend, not necessarily at least, um, to supply planetary coverage. It doesn't aim at a totality in that sense, but it's more a perspective that puts a very specific event. It may be something very small in its large and potentially global Context and therefore, I, yes, you're right. Um, it's not. It, it does. It's, it cannot be equated with the universal history. Universality is not necessarily uh, the point of departure. In fact, um, I, it, it, I would. I would say that's one of the misunderstandings that I sometimes also encounter. There are historians who are, you know, riding the wave of global history who, who uh, essentially uh, have or posit as one of their aims to arrive at a history that everyone can subscribe to, a a history that where, you know, the historian almost like um, with a bird's eye view flies at a long distance above the planet and then can describe everything almost objectively and comprehensively. And then everyone can say yes. Uh, But I don't think that's the way it, it works. In fact, global history is really, it owes, I think, much of its potential and also much of its appeal to the fact that it, the world will look very different depending on from where we look at it. So if we write a world history uh, from, you know, somewhere in Vietnam, it'll look different from one that's written in Senegal or in Denmark or, or in the United States for that matter. And this positionality, that is the, the way in which we look at the world differently depending from where we look, depending on who we are, uh, you know, in in ethnic terms, class terms, religious terms, and so forth, whoever looks at the world will also look at it in different ways. And that's something I think we need to bring to to the conversation of global history, that there are these various and different perspectives that cannot just simply be merged into something that looks homogenous and universal.
0: So one thing that you've been referencing over the last 20 or so minutes is the fact that 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 global history is an attempt to push back against this, the containerization of history, the attempt to write these national histories, um, which to some extent isn't a very, I mean, the great age of nations is the last two or three centuries, which is something I think we often forget. The nations didn't always exist. They didn't always pre-exist. But do national histories have a place in contemporary history writing and global history writing? (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's a good it's a good question i mean uh, do they have a place or should they have a place i mean that's that's almost that, that's too quick. in some ways you could say do they have a place yes i mean they're still very alive and kicking we see national histories emerging all over the place and i think one of the interesting phenomena that we see happening at this point is that historians are writing and rewriting the histories of their nations in a transnational or global vein so be it in the united states there's a this book by Tom Bender that comes to my mind, or the very recent uh, debate in France about uh, the the big work edited by Patrick Boucheron. There's a book in Italy that uh, was also published just last year um, by Andrea Giardina. All of these books, they try to rewrite the history of the nation in a global context and thus provide the nation with a larger stage, or you could also say, you know, Frame the nation in a broader context, but nevertheless, ultimately, these are still national histories, and in some ways, they reproduce the idea of, of 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 the nation and the nation state. So, if we just look at what's happening and not what should happen, then we definitely see that um, the nation national histories are alive and kicking, even though sort of in a in a new sort of uh, you you could call it national histories reloaded, right, under the in an age of of global entanglements. Now, is that a good or a bad thing? I mean, first of all, I think it's something that I just acknowledge and I observe. Um, And second, it's also, I think, important to realize that the, 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 the mere fact that nations are constructed and imagined and so forth, of course, doesn't make them go away. And therefore, I think our main task as global historians is to try to understand the way in which nations and nation states emerged in a broader, that is, global context. So instead of throwing the nation state and also national histories out completely. I think the the more interesting question is to ask, so how do these national histories emerge in response to global challenges? And also, how do the national histories that nations tell themselves about themselves, how do they reflect these larger um, global realities?
0: So another sort of, I mean, as I mentioned, you, you, you just answered a question about the nation state and national histories. Um, but another thing that you rail against in the book that I, I quite enjoyed mm-hmm. um, as someone who works on Arabic language intellectual history was the Eurocentricism. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It being um, an, sort of one of the adversaries of the global history that you envision. But it's funny because often mm-hmm. one of my early frustrations with the field of at least global intellectual history was it did feel very Eurocentric. I felt like there was an attempt, mm-hmm. and this is something I think you can see in some I'm gonna get shot by a bunch of people in my field. You see this in some contemporary <laughs> Middle Eastern um, intellectual histories, yeah. at least. There's a lot of reception history, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I I feel I'm of two or three different minds about it. I mm-hmm. think that often
1: that's that's too ma- that's too many. <laughs> I just
0: yeah. I, I often yeah. feel like there's a, there's a Eurocentrism to that, and I worry if that that mm-hmm. if that's what we're writing. Mm-hmm then maybe we, mm. uh, we're reproducing certain conversations or reproducing several anyway. So I, mm. my question to you is, before I begin ranting against my field and then apologizing at the mm. same time, <laughs> how can global history correct Eurocentrism in the Euro- global history that you envision?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll start with the first answer, I suppose, and then we may want to engage in a longer conversation of this because this is a this is a very tricky, difficult, complex, but also crucially important issue. I think, um, so so Eurocentrism comes in all kinds of forms and uh, uh, and, and variations. And and of course, f- f- focusing on and, on the non-European past doesn't make Eurocentrism go away. Obviously, right? I mean, we can write in a very Eurocentric way about the Arab world. The, uh, you know, East Asia, where I where I was trained. In fact, many of the historians that we encounter in these places, they may even write hi- history in a more Eurocentric way than we would appreciate. So, so it's it's more than just focusing on on other regions. Um, so, and I think it the the issue is so difficult and 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 tricky because the Eurocentrism that we see is not only can we cannot only observe it on the level of narrative that is you know for example the idea that uh, something emerged only in the west and then gradually spread i mean that would be that's something that's already difficult to counter sometimes but it's but it's um, it's clearly observable but the eurocentrism comes in and sneaks in through the very concepts that we use this would be a second layer Um, and these concepts they many of the concepts that we use in the field that is in history but also in the related disciplines like uh, political science, sociology, uh, art history and so forth, these concepts that make our discipline, they they found their way into the academic language in some sometime in the 19th century uh, at a time when Eurocentrism was the unquestioned, essentially, um, bedrock of, of these new emerging fields. So it's very difficult to go against the, the way in which these concepts still continue to shape our thinking. So for example, if we say you know, if we say nation, then we assume that we can observe nations all around the world, but many communities were organized very differently. When we say religion, then typically many historians have a particular idea of what a religion actually is, and it may be derived from a Euro-American experience and then imposed on other regions and fields. Even language, even that term, uh, may, may be problematic. So, 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 So that is, I think, the very deep and almost inextricable way in which our field and discipline are linked to Eurocentric assumptions. And it's very difficult uh, to move against them.
0: So I'm going to take a guess at one of the terms that you're referring to. You mentioned the word nation, you mentioned the term religion, but modernity is one that I struggle with because I... I often think that it's, again, and I'm just going to get shot by everyone in my field this week. When this interview comes out, I'm just going to get hanged. (laughs) I often think people use modernity as a placeholder for a lot of things in Middle Eastern history Mm -hmm. or in Islamic history, Mm -hmm. um, the history of Muslim nations, for example. It just, um, And I wonder if modernity is Mm -hmm. one of the uh, terms you were referring to. So I want to ask you, A, if that's the case, Mm -hmm. but also how is Mm -hmm. the term modernity useful?
1: Is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, well, I'm not going to shoot you for the question. I think uh, no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, that's it, it is one of the highly problematic terms. And I see. I mean, I think we we still see it very frequently used as uh, as an adjective, right? In modern Egypt or something like that, without a huge discussion about it. The term modernity is maybe more. Is, is already more contentious and maybe, um, well, more contested, not as, doesn't come as natural. I mean, in principle, I think the term modern slash modernity has been questioned, has been questioned thoroughly and fundamentally in the whole debate about modernization theory. And in some ways, it's very difficult to use it straight in a straightforward manner without a guilty conscience these days. Um, so if we assume that, you know modernity is a set of attributes and qualities that a society can acquire i think that and also the assumption that there's a particular directionality mm-hmm. built into historical development that is let's say from a traditional society to a modern one from a more religious society to a more secularist one from one in where status is you're born with a particular status to one where you acquire status via what you do um and merit, I think this view is is no longer tenable that's for sure so so why the why the stubborn resistance of that term to go away i I think it's due to the fact that most of the actors that we study they are in some ways let's call them modernization theorists in their own right. They may not necessarily, for example, if we look at the nineteenth century. Um, so a little earlier than uh, what you look at <laughs> in, in, in your work, but if you look at the 19th century, frequently the term modern or modernity doesn't come up. Nevertheless, we see that many historical actors in, you know, be it in India and in the Ottoman Empire in China, they they develop an an idea of what they conceive as modernity about you know whenever they talk about the need for reform they need uh, uh, they they talk about the need for change they need they talk about the need to uh, to import a certain set of ideas and so forth whenever they talk about reform they have a sense of sort of their own sense of modernity that they imply and they in in many of these you know sources we find the idea that 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 modernity is something that they want to partake in, that they want to participate in, and therefore, in this sense, as a category that historical actors use and apply as a as an actor's category, really not so much as an analytical category that we as historians use, I think the term is still incredibly useful to give us a sense of what was at stake, um, you know, in the nineteenth century, in the early twentieth century, as well. No, I completely. Does that does that make does that make sense if you if you link it to to uh, to the kinds of actors that you study? It does.
0: I'm I'm a big advocate of giving the mic to the microphone to my actors <laughs> and to letting them speak. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, obviously not letting them speak entirely for me because then I would just be translating sources, but.
1: And then they would—it would be their PhD in the end. In yeah, those. and then
0: I, I mean, I would be—I mean, I would just disappoint my parents even more than I already have by choosing a PhD in history. Um, but I—I I, I just feel uncomfortable putting words in their mouths. And inevitably, we have to do hmm. some of that work. But it—it hmm. it scares hmm. me to apply terms or to make up terms that are not being used, especially because hmm. also—and I'm sure you face this in your work—the politics of translation. I mean, I spent this morning struggling about how to translate a term that I have often translated as the, com- the, 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 the general public, but I decided this morning mm-hmm. it was better as the common man. Um, mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I, I think that the general public is a very different idea. And it's one that I was taking from my own contemporary sense of that word mm-hmm. and applying mm-hmm. it to that. So it, it is always about, I think it always comes back to, and I think this is just a general principle of history writing making mm-hmm. sure that you don't take advantage of your historical actors and, and, and misread them. Um, but anyway, back to global history itself. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. No, no. But I think, I mean, the, whatever you point, I mean, what you just pointed out, I think is, I mean, first of all, it's a conundrum that all historians face in some way or another. Um, we, I mean, we cannot, I mean, we, yes, we want to be very close to these historical actors. And I, I, I see, I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, desire really to be very close to them and sort of to not impose our own standards and terms on them. At the same time, we cannot just simply let them speak uh, for us. We want to have and use our own analytical language to make sense of what, what happened. And I think this, I mean, this is a very basic conundrum, but it poses itself with a particular urgency in the field of global history as we're essentially forced to, I mean, you called it the politics of translation. I mean, we we want to and need to speak to constituencies beyond our own field. And that means that we have to, we have to, in some ways, uh, do this translation work. We have to frame the problem also, not only in the terms of the actors, not only in the terms of our particular field, but also in terms that are accessible to historians of, let's say, Argentina or Vietnam, right? So, so in that sense... I think that it is a balance to strike in every single case. And we can, well, I mean, I think, as you just also pointed out, we can't just simply side with, with the actors. Well,
0: yeah, exactly. Because I think that's another thing we have to realize is that our work isn't to serve the actors because they've long gone and they probably wouldn't care that much anyway. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't know. I work I work on newspapers, so that's a very different thing. But um, I, mm-hmm. I do think that there's a... Re- I mean, we're also writing for different audiences and I'm a very big advocate and this podcast is part of that project. Um, in bringing things to the general public, this is another reason why I loved your book. I thought, you know, this is the sort of thing I could assign to a classroom, an undergraduate classroom, and I think it would really change the way they think about the world around them. It would allow them to think about globalization differently. It would allow them to think about connections differently because one thing, one example I was to them is, do you really think that just because you and someone else in another corner of the world use the internet, do you really think that means that your minds are mm. being molded exactly the same way? Do you think that, and this mm. is on to my next question. Um, do you really think that just because ideas travel, do you think that ideas um, implant? And that's, that's, that's what I want my students mm. to take away from this. I want them to think about the ways in which the world works. I don't want them to necessarily remember mm. that in um, the 1860s, there was a civil war of sorts in Ottoman Syria. I want them to, I, I, mm-hmm. I don't think that that's going to help them in their everyday lives. So the idea of connections mm-hmm. um, that I mentioned a mm-hmm. moment ago and transfer, mm-hmm. are connections enough to write a global history? Um, and then I also want to ask about, you use this term, and I love this, I'm going to be using this for a while, dynamics of transfer. How does that mm-hmm. figure into connections between different places of the world?
1: hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for the question, and I I uh, I, uh, I like your pedagogy there. Exactly, I think that's how how we should teach. Um, we <clears throat> now this issue of of transfer is a tricky one again. I mean, of course, sometimes. I mean, first of all, I mean the simple answer would be to say, well, I mean transfer alone, transfers alone, interactions alone do not yet make good global history. In some cases. A particular connection may be, you know, almost negligible; may have almost zero impact. In other cases, it is it does change a whole society dramatically. So the connection in itself is only the beginning; is only the starting point. But more specifically to your question of implant, and and I hear the intellectual historian uh, speaking there. <laughs> I I think that's a that's one of the most challenging questions that we pose. I mean, it is it is. I think, you know, we can't deny that sometimes an idea or a book, um, maybe your maybe your book, um, you know, will have an immense impact and will change the way things uh, go or uh, the, the way people think. But for me, as a, I mean, it there is this long tradition, as you also pointed out, of, of, um, you know, locating the origin of a particular idea somewhere, maybe in France, maybe in. the you know, in in Britain and then gradually charting the way in which this idea has traveled elsewhere and gradually informed people in the British Empire or around the world. And then sometimes the question is, hey, you global historians, can you come up with similar examples that also shape, you know, examples from, from Japan, from Turkey, from India that have also shaped the West similarly? And I think this whole setup of questions is... Is the wrong approach. So instead of asking how does a particular idea shape or you know you you called it implant, how does it how does it impact on a society and change it? I think the more important and more productive question is, what are the conditions of resonance of a particular idea? So an idea may be voiced, it may be written down, and then sometimes it takes a hundred years before the book gets translated. So why? If the idea was so powerful, then we would expect it to have an impact right away. What if it happened? What if it is translated a, year, a century later? I think the crucial question here is then not so much what is it in that idea that makes the travel, but rather what are the larger conditions that make the travel possible in the first place? So instead of starting with the idea, we would then start with the broader conditions that enabled that idea to gain traction, um, to 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 well to get to 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 gain resonance in the first place. So, for example, a translation then would not so much be the start of the transmission, but would in some ways already be the result of the fact that now there is a fertile ground um, for reception elsewhere. Does does that make sense?
0: It absolutely does. I I agree wholeheartedly with a lot of this, particularly because I think that ideas also. I think sometimes we get hung up over the fact that ideas don't travel in their pure form. We forget that they can change that once an idea is sort of let out into the world, it can, there are different, like you said, resonances. And I love that word because there are different aspects. There are different layers to ideas and there are different things that people take away from something. So for example, I might read your book and there might be one particular thing that I take away from it. And then I change it a little bit. And then when I teach your book, the way I, I I iterate it, the way I talk about it, is different. It's it's becoming a different idea, and it also, I I, I completely agree. I think oftentimes we forget. I I I don't know about until I don't. I think in intellectual history in particular, there's often this desire to either push back against to push back against context, mm-hmm. um, to push back against why certain ideas. Feel resonance. Why certain ideas don't, um, and there's this push now. I, I often wonder if it's this neoconservative trend to just look at the content of the ideas themselves. Not neoconservative, more conservative trend. But um, <laughs> yeah. And again, I'm just going to get shot by everyone I know when this.
1: No no, 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 but I, 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 come to your rescue definitely. So, so, so call me if if someone approaches you with a gun in hand. But, but I agree. I mean, I think um, it, I mean, there are various ways of doing intellectual history, but for me intellectual history that does not have a social history grounding, I mean, that's very subjective, but is not the kind of intellectual history I would like to read. So therefore, I think it's crucial, absolutely, to to think about context. And in this field, I mean, the the field of global intellectual history is still an emerging field. It's a, it's a movement, I think, that's only began a few years ago, really. So we're still in this infant stage of that field. And and in this field of global intellectual history, it's it's all the more important to to take account of context and to think about context because otherwise we we end up with these very simple and simplified stories of dissemination that um, you know are more the stuff of the nineteen fifties and sixties I think.
0: What really worries me about global history, global intellectual history, right now, and then we'll go back to the book itself as we've gone on this global intellectual history tangent, which I very much enjoyed, <laughs> um, is that I think that when people hear the social history, they worry that, and I think this has to, this is my whole theory about it. I think for my field, it's a little bit different, but this is sort of how I see the field of intellectual history at large, regardless of of country of origin, regardless of time, is there's this emphasis on hierarchies of ideas and studying ideas that have value. And what bothers me about that is that, I think oftentimes the ideas that are more interesting are the ideas that do have social grounding that are in the social ether, and I think oftentimes the push against context is that for certain ideas, there isn't as much of that social context that is easily mm-hmm. graspable, because there's this assumption that intellectuals exist at this higher level. To me, this is all just sort of how historians act upon certain instincts. Mm. But I mean, that's something I'm, I'm struggling with right now is how do I write histories of, of ideas that are are are... That are, are less hierarchical. That are not about the quality of the idea, because I don't think that's my task mm-hmm. at all. It's not my task to say, "Well, that's a good idea. I'm going to mm-hmm. write about it," because, like you said, you never know when a history is, when an idea is going to become relevant, or what parts of ideas will connect with another idea. And I would rather give them all their fair share and mm-hmm. fair share. Um, so, one idea I think about constantly when I when I when I when I speak or when I teach, I use this example: is there's this particular thinker who in, um, oh God, I'm forgetting the century. Another thing I'm gonna get shot for is forgetting the century this particular <coughs> philosopher lived in. Um, but he's a philosopher who lived in the 13th century, I believe, in in, in in medieval Syria, so to speak. And he wrote a book. He wrote several books and treatises and he died in prison. And then... Um, what happened was that his books were seized upon by printers and publishers in the nineteenth century. Of course, this is a gross simplification of the story, but um, and printed. He wasn't popular for several centuries, and now he's one of the leading. I mean, when um, sort of the global Islamic trend of Salafism and Wahhabism. Um, global, not because it's pervasive. It's a very minor, small minority in the, in the Muslim populations that, that adhere to this. But Salafism and Wahhabism draw heavily on this thinker. But it was simply someone reprinting him in the 19th century, and then it finding an audience that led to the pervasion of this idea. Exactly mm-hmm. what you mm-hmm. said. Um, and it's again not a, a case of whether that idea is coherent it has a coherence for the people that adhere to it and that's something i also think comes into sort of respecting the agent but now back to <laughs> global <laughs> history itself um, so i want to ask you some more practical <laughs> questions all right good. Um, because i i struggled with this as a student um, of global history I, I as i mentioned i think when i found my project it was more that i realized there was a global perspective on what i was looking at and that looking at my particular topic so newspapers and magazine production um but looking at it through a global lens would allow me to think about it differently and to see where things were shifting but i i wonder if i had approached it initially with so i sort of along the way decided oh this would make I need the global perspective to understand this. Mm-hmm. Do you think that one should start a global history project with global history in mind, or should it be a perspective that one keeps on one's table?
1: I think both are possible. I think many of us start on a project regardless. We just think it's fascinating and we just go ahead. And then at some point we realize that there is, you know, definitely we cannot explain it without taking global processes and large, very large contexts into account. But I think it's it's pretty much the same as with any approach. For example, you could say, you know, I I'll, I'll just stumble on whatever project, let's say a history of the stock market, and then I feel oh a gender perspective might actually also be interesting. But you could also say no, you know, I want to do I want to contribute to the field of gender history, and therefore I will already look for something that lends itself to that perspective. And I think the second approach is now at least for me myself, is now more common. So when I think about the next you know, project that I want to pursue, I will have this already in mind, I would like the project to make a contribution to global history, both in the sense of being a subject in that field, but also to help me think through the methodology of how to do it. So therefore, yeah, I would be looking for something that already starts with, with interactions with mobility, I would, that's how I would, that's how I would start these days.
0: Okay. Um, I'm just going to wait for that siren to stop going on. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, so I um, want to give you a bit of a task as I want to sort of, this may go wrong because mm-hmm. we'll see how this goes.
1: All I right. want to That's see if
0: I could give you a topic and you could sort of sketch out how you would think globally about it. Oh. Would that be all right? All
1: right. All right. Let's try. That's the task. You're right.
0: <laughs> so say you're working on the idea of coffee houses in the European continent. Mm -hmm. The reason this occurs to me is coffee houses are actually really important to the Mm -hmm. history of newspapers Mm -hmm. and magazines in the Arabic speaking world. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to make an assumption about, and currently they're very important. They're where I write most of my dissertation. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, if you're working on the idea of coffee houses in the European continent, where would you begin a global history of that? How would you approach a global history of that concept?
1: You're right to point out that it's, (laughs) <laughs> probably derived more from your project than from mine, so coffee houses is not exactly high on my agenda. But but maybe I mean I, something that I could say yeah. that's very general and probably in some ways would apply to all uh, projects would be this. So so one so I could look at coffee houses say in one particular place and say Vienna, right? Uh, and then I could look at this. And uh, then I could first first step would be to say no, this is not something that happens that, that we can see emerging only in. Austria, but we can also see this in France, in the Ottoman Empire, obviously, uh, you know, in in many places. So there's a comparative approach. We could say, look at it comparatively. And then second, we could say, well, but it's more than that. In fact, there are, for example, the ingredients are already linked, right? We cannot, I mean, we cannot write a history of coffee houses without looking at coffee and where it's produced and how it got to, for example, Vienna in some cases it'll also be the people who run the coffee house or the waiters and so forth who are also mobile and come to that place so so it's not just a comparative history but we can actually look at the links and the connections the transfers and the various ways in which things or the idea of a coffee house or the people who run it travel so comparison and connections are sort of two steps in this story, but I, I guess what I would then tend to do next, as a third step, would be to say, well, it's all nice. The fact, you know, and we, we just talked about it. I mean, the fact that coffee travels, or the idea of a coffee house travels, uh, is something that is, you know, cannot be taken for granted. I think the third question then we would have to ask would be why what are the why is it that the idea of a coffee house travels what are the conditions that make this possible and now we come and you 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 already mentioned it a coffee house you said you you link it to a newspaper you link it to a particular form of let's call it public sphere you link it to a particular social formation of a particular you know it's a particular social group that goes to coffee houses so so for the for for this kind of public sphere to emerge for this kind of social group to coalesce that needs to be understood in a broader context and cannot be simply, you know, understood by looking at the coffee house itself. So, so essentially, I would look at this comparatively as step one. I would then look at the connections as step two. But then I would thirdly look at the broader and potentially global context of emergence of the whole idea of the coffee house.
0: No, I really enjoy that, partially because I. I... Well, I mean, like I said, I think a lot about coffee houses for no apparent reason, for many apparent, you. You
1: probably, you probably sit in them more than you should.
0: Probably. And I was, I was recently telling someone when I'm in coffee houses here in Istanbul, the problem is that a cat will often come and sit in your lap.
1: Ah, all right. Okay. Is that, <laughs> Which I, do you have to pay for that as well or?
0: No, it's free. It's free oh, okay. emotional release for all a right. graduate student. You have, <laughs> it's, it's basically like having a free psych appointment. All
1: right. Um, okay. Okay.
0: But, but uh. Actually, I was thinking about that this morning. I was thinking about sort of the global history of domestication of cats. I was thinking about it as a cat followed me um, because this city has a particular history with them and they say something about the formation of this city that needs to be taken quite seriously, for example. And that's actually, I think, another way in which global history, that's something else I want my students to take away from this, is that they can think about where the beans come from. They can think about where the idea of cats and domesticity comes from. Mm. They can think about where the idea of a coffee shop comes Mm. from. And also, what does that say about how people think about companionship Mm -hmm. and about interacting with each other Mm -hmm. and for my generation why do many people work from home (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. um no i think i mean this is i don't know if this is where you're heading but but i think an important point here would be this so what i've talked about essentially would be you know yes global connections yes global conditions of emergence of the coffee house, but these would be the factors that make them all in some ways comparable and legible in some ways um um, you know, look homogenous maybe, but this is when the next step needs to set in. So so as we essentially started out our conversation, uh, global history is not universal history. And it means that coffee houses will be different in various ways. And the fact that you have a cat on your lap in Istanbul and maybe you don't have one in Zurich, uh, that needs, that calls for explanation. So I think, and that's also, you know, one of the dangers I see in the field. I mean, there is a certain tendency, temptation, even desire uh, to create globality and to establish globality. But ultimately, we want to then also explain difference. We want to account for specificity. We want to understand why a coffee house smells differently, maybe in Istanbul or looks differently, or maybe different people congregate in that place, even though the institution looks so so similar. So, so ultimately, you know, the, the, the particularity of the place, I think, really needs to feature. And that's why that's where your cat comes in, I suppose
0: yes and that's actually that is exactly i mean like not homogenizing that's always my greatest fear with global history is to homogenize um and this actually feeds really well into my next question which is about what your favorite global histories of re- of late have been because we were just talking before the interview about one of your colleagues uh, Yosef ben, Pre- ben Prestel, who i interviewed for um, another channel on the new books network mm-hmm. um and his book I was never, and I never told him this, I probably should at some point, I wasn't really a believer in comparative intellectual history, uh, mm-hmm. comparative global histories until I read his book,
1: oh. which mm-hmm. I
0: thought made an excellent case for why things are different, but the same in two different contexts. The book is named Emotional Cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks at both. It's an urban emotional history of Cairo and Berlin, mm-hmm. and you don't think that would work, but it, it does. And I think he comes off with this huge rhetorical punch. Mm-hmm. Um so I wanted to ask again, since I've offered yeah. one of mine, yeah. what are yeah. some of your favorite global histories, even if they don't identify as that, uh, yeah. of the last year or so?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. No, I think, I mean, so, so so, just a quick PS to what you just said, and then I'll move to the question. So, so it is true, I mean, comparison, I mean, uh, yes, comparison seems to, so, in some ways, so old-fashioned and in some ways also obsolete in the sense that uh, it, it seems so rigid uh, compared to the transfer histories and global histories we have but but done well and and by that i mean place if the comparison is placed in a global context then it's an entirely different animal and and the book that brought brought that home to me uh, the strongest was uh, christopher hill's book on the the writing of national histories in the united states france and and japan this is a book that's 10 years old already but I think it's still one of the most powerful cases that that helped us move beyond the, 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 the rigid uh, framework of, of comparison and, and make very good use of it. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, if I if I look at my bookshelf and some of the books from the past one, two years or so, yes, there there would be books that I really admire, uh, like, for example, the book of my colleague, Michael Goebel. Uh, that's called anti imperial metropolis that yeah. that identify as global histories right he writes this this it's a book about interwar france and the way in which um france becomes a a site where anti colonial nationalists from all kinds of places meet and interact from vietnam and from egypt from morocco from the ottoman empire from china and so forth and they they i mean we we tend to now realize that the imperial powers interacted and collaborated, but this book really shows very nicely how also the anti-imperial forces <laughs> um, uh, interacted, and, and in particular, what he shows is that the the site where they meet, namely interwar Paris, does make a difference and tends to shape their perspectives and change them radically. So this is really a, a wonderful book, I think, that that um, exemplifies many of the of the strength of the approach um but then as you as you indicated there are also absolutely wonderful books that would not claim the label global but they do in some ways do exactly that right they they uh, are written from a particular perspective but place it in larger context i mean i there's this book by by a japanese scholar called konishi sho the book is called anarchist modernity and it's really a book about japan mostly but but it it has these amazing uh, I mean, he first of all, he has amazing material that that helps him link the Japanese case to all kinds of other uh, places: Russia, Western Europe, the United States, and so forth. But also, he the problematic. I mean, he frames the whole question in a in a sort of in a global history spirit. I would say, uh, so therefore, um, we we don't need the term global on the cover uh, in order to have good global history.
0: No, I completely agree. The two that actually came to my mind when I said that, one was um, Tuful Abu Khudev's book, A Taste for Home, which is a history of the middle class in Beirut at the turn of the 19th 20th mm-hmm, century, mm-hmm. which really integrates, I mean, there's nothing, I think she she throws the word in global many times, but it's clearly about how Beirut supports city and how this influences the middle class. And it's so powerfully done and so subtly done. And then another is Transforming Sudan by Alden Young, which is about experts and, um, developmentalism in, um, mid, mid 20th century Sudan, but it does it really well by just, he, he clearly knows what the global systems Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are doing Mm -hmm. to Sudan. And it's something I admire just the way he just disabled, it's such a thick Mm -hmm. book, but he slips everything in so subtly at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, there's, there's a lot going on in the field.
1: Well, yeah, it's true. I I So so I think for for some projects that the, the, you know, an explicitly global method is unavoidable, is, is necessary, but for many it is more this kind of awareness uh, that you are also pointing to. So, you know, in this one sense of the word that I started out with, namely, we need the term global to actually make possible and enable studies that in the old system were not really feasible in that sense, You know, the more we do it, the the less we need, the less we need the label. So ultimately, 10 years from now, maybe we'll just call this good history and we'll, you know, take the connections where they lead us. We'll look at the context that makes sense. But whether they're national or regional or global will no longer matter. So in some ways, I think uh, the, the term global is also a term that we just need sort of a call to arms. This is what we need to do. This is where, you know, this is a vision uh, but at some point we'll also be able to. So, so so the moment we can get rid of it, I think, is the moment of arrival.
0: Oh, that's a lovely way to put it. Um, so we always close the interview with a question about what... First of all, I actually need to congratulate you on the book. I know it's been two years since it came out, but I think it's such an achievement an accomplishment, and accomplishment. I think it'll be with us for many years to come. Well, thanks.
1: That's, that's, that's more generous than I deserve.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm, okay. You, I'll let you have that, but... Um, So we always ask the uh, interviewee what they're currently working on. If he gives a bit of a teaser.
1: All right. Yeah, that's a um, well, I um, it's a good question. So I, um, in fact, um, uh, a book of mine just came out (laughs) uh, two months ago, maybe um, one month ago. Um, It's called An Emerging Modern World. It's a book that I co-wrote. It's a huge one of those huge books came out with Harvard University Press. Um, where I have only a chapter, but the chapter is some 270 pages long, so it's really a, a book of sorts, and it's a, essentially a study of the global, let's call it a, a cultural history of global transformations between the late 18th and the late 19th century, um, and, and sort of building on that, I've recently done work on. I mean, I've it's a study. It's a study that is at the moment only a case study. It's a, ca- a case study on architecture and uh, the way in which two architects one in japan and one in india try to they struggle to put japanese and indian architecture on the map of world architecture and this is around 1900 Uh, and i'm looking in their various in the into the into the very different but but equally exciting trajectories of these two people and what i'm thinking so, so this is an article and i've submitted uh, submitted the article to a journal as well. Um, At at this point, I'm thinking about whether to turn this into a larger project that would um, deal with the role of, um, of, essentially, of aesthetics, and what we count as beautiful, and how that changed between this earlier moment of global interactions, the 1880s, 1900s, and our present. Okay,
0: I'm going to be looking, I'm going to be looking for that volume and that mega article
1: that you wrote. But anyway,
0: (laughs) (laughs) good luck. And thank you so much. I really enjoyed this.
1: Well, thank you so much. Uh, That was a very pleasant conversation. Thanks a lot. And uh, talk to you soon.